Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. My name is Ryan Sheckle, and each week I interview experts and leaders about their stories and strategies on how to optimize your mind, your body, your career, and your life so that you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing your time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. If you're someone that has never had to work hard for success or wants to catch lightning in a bottle, this episode is not for you. Richard Bach said, a professional writer is an amateur that didn't quit. And Ernest Hemingway wrote, the first draft of anything is shit. David Roberts is the number one best-selling international author of the self-development book, Whiskey and Yoga, and the novel, The Lighthouse Keeper. He took his lessons of meaningful and deliberate daily practice from years serving as a U.S. Marine and applied those principles to achieve success as a writer. He's a storyteller by nature, and he shares his advice on achieving international success through his military experience, as well as his daily writing process. Take David's stories to heart and learn to appreciate and embrace the hard work it takes to achieve meaningful success in your life. If you like this episode, share it with a friend that might also enjoy it. If this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And be sure to rate us and leave a review with the most impactful part of this episode when you're done listening. Without further ado, David Richards. Dave, how you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk with you, Ryan. Yeah. Did you always want to be a writer when you were in the Marines? I did. I did. Like, I, so in high school, I got something, uh, I got a national national recognition for a short story, like when I was in 10th grade. And all it meant was, if you remember National Scholastic Magazine, I don't like if you, if they had that when you were like a kid, was I had my name on a piece of paper. Again, but this magazine was nationwide. And so it was like, cool. That was really cool. And then like that summer, I got something from the Philadelphia College of Art or the Philadelphia School of Art, which was ludicrous because I'm like, why is the college that I'm like, a, I'm a you know junior coming into my junior year, it was like 1985 or something. I'm like, why is this happening? Like, I'm not going to school of art. Uh, and so then, but like, like I was encouraged, I guess, more writing. I really liked writing. And so like I started writing poetry and I got some poetry that like was one contest or whatever. And then, um, like it came time to go to college and it was one grades weren't good enough because I wasn't focused. So no scholarship that way. I either had to work or go ROTC and like I, I had, this love-hate relationship with the Marine Corps because my dad was in it and I hated moving because it was always like starting over and like scabbing like okay we're never gonna be friends goodbye and like you move somewhere else and he was like oh so I wasn't gonna join I wasn't gonna join Marines so I was gonna Navy ROTC well that was like too technical because my mind's not engineering and so like I panicked so like oh I can't do this uh so like like worked really hard to get in the Marines also worked on my but I was an English major in college. And so like, that's what I loved doing. And I was focused on writing, but I all at the same time, I knew as soon as I graduate, I'm going to be in the Marines and Marines don't write. They're not Marines don't write poetry. So that's not going to happen. And so I had this, I had this sort of forecast in my head that I'm going to graduate with an English major, but that's going to be the last thing I use. Like my, my college roommate was a psychology major and he's going in the Marines too. And I'm like, <clears throat> what's that going to do for you? 
can it really help you? Like same thing. Like we, it was almost like we both felt like we sort of thrown away our, our, our majors because we didn't know how they were going to apply to our lives. Um, but yeah, when I got into the Marines, it was like, I'm going to learn how to be a Marine and lead. And I, I subdued, absolutely subdued that writing bug. Yeah. It's interesting because you mentioned, um, and the first thing you said, you said that one of the most impactful moments of realization was understanding that you, you wanted to, or you found your purpose. Um, you found your purpose in life. And I'm curious because going into the Marines is a pretty big decision as well as choosing your major in college, because it kind of provides you that, that direction. Did either of those choices align with any sort of purpose you may have thought you had before you made those choices? It's a, it's a great question. I really hadn't thought about it that way, but, but I think for me, <clears throat> what I've come to realize is, and this is going to sound, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is like, in, like endorse, like trying to get sympathy, but like I grew up, even as a kid, I now realize I was born to be a Marine because we moved around all the time. And that's the Marine lifestyle. We lived in Japan for three years as a kid. You don't want to tell me in 1979, 1980, going to, you know, the, Eastern philosophy and being exposed to that for three years in your formative years doesn't have an effect on you. That's why I teach yoga. That's why like all this stuff, like that's such a big part of why my life has happened the way it has is because this exposure to Eastern philosophy had me meditating at an early age to answer your question. Like I had no idea what I would do if I didn't join the military, like as a kid, like I was like, I was like, I had no clue because it wasn't the, because like this, there's this sort of transitory, like there, I like my life was I'm here for this long and that's how sort of how I lived every because you knew okay we're gonna be here from this year and then we're gonna leave this year and so you kind of built your life at least I did in that sort of box and then when it came time to like what are you gonna do I like like ROTC was the only thing that made sense because it was like that's the only thing I knew was like there were four different services you know Army Air Force Navy Marines I didn't want to do the Coast Guard because I didn't know a lot about the Coast Guard but like Navy Marines, I'm familiar with that, so that's the path I'm going to go. And I like I had no compunction about doing anything else. Yeah, I I talked to my wife about this um, before we had kids. We had, you know, you go through and you say, well, how do we want to raise our kids? And one of the things we brought up was we just said we want to expose them to so many different things that they were comfortable with all the options that they would have in life. And we didn't want to like pigeonhole them into saying, you know, these are our interests. This is what we love to do. So you guys are going to have to feel like you have to do the same thing. And in so many ways, I think exposing people to a variety of um, activities, a variety of topics, a variety of people, I think it's so important because like you said, if you are pigeonholed into just these collective experiences, then you might not understand all the options that are out there. And it's, it's really interesting to hear you say, well, I mean, if I didn't become a Marine, I don't, I don't know what I would have done. It's the same way. Yeah. It's the same way growing up. Like I grew up in, in a suburban um, area of Rochester, New York, and I, I didn't know what career options there were either. It never occurred to me actually to go into the military because I didn't really know many military people. Um, you know, I knew you could be a doctor, a lawyer, 
a teacher. It was like, okay, well, those are three jobs that normal, like people might have based on what my guidance counselor is telling me, you know, and then you kind of move around and you say, oh my gosh, I didn't know any of these careers ever existed. (laughs) Oh, well, it was like so cool because even going through graduation, like, like it was weird. I like I joined a fraternity because my brother, like I followed my brother to Penn State because that's where he went. And the fraternity was like animal house. I mean, it was just a dingy looking fraternity. Like people would cross the street to avoid walking in front of this fraternity, which is ironic because when I joined in the eighties, it was like 80% ROTC people. And then I think by the time I left, it was like down to 40% or something. And it like, it kind of eventually ROTC, I think went away from it, but it was like, that was like, that was it. Like, that's what was going to happen. And there was no, like nothing else. But then like, my friends would be like, oh, well, I might get a job with Disney doing like, like Pixar animation kind of stuff. And you're like, dude, and part of it's like, of course, because you're artistic and you've got this skill, that's so cool. And then it's like, oh, I want to do something like that. And she's like, oh yeah, but I'm going to go get my head shaved and go do what I, like what my dad did, because I, it's, it's hard to like break yourself out of that world if you've never really seen what's on the other side of it. So um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty funny looking back on it. Yeah. It's, it, it, you know, and people would probably look at your experience and say, dude, you're going into the Marines. That's so cool. You get to shave your head and go shoot guns. You know, it's like, it's just through the, uh, through the lens of the beholder, I guess, is, is this perspective. And you had a bunch of experiences that a lot of other people didn't have growing up that people would look at and say, Oh my gosh, you lived in Japan for three years. Like, what was that like? First of all, what was that like? What was it like growing up and having three years spent as a child in Japan? Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because, you know, my dad fought in the Vietnam war and he fought like he was, he was a trigger puller came back with those experiences. I like, I came along two years after that and he did one unassigned, like sometimes um, there's unaccompanied tours. And so my dad He's been Marines for 31 years, but he went to one year by himself to Japan and our family stayed, I think, in Colorado with family there. And then a couple years later, like we were going through school and he's like, well, let's take a family to Japan. And so it was this like introduction and like we would go like we would go visit battles because you'd go. It was on Okinawa, Japan. And so you could go see like stuff where the Marines fought in World War Two, but then we'd also go to these temples and you just see like the elegance and the eloquence of Japanese culture in full display. And they'd have like these beautiful festivals, the Obon festival, which is like a this festival, like commemorating and celebrating like their ancestors. And these drums would beat at night and you're just like, and you're the minority and you don't really understand what it means to be a minority, but you're like, no one looks like me on the other side of this fence that we live on. Like no one, like everyone's got black hair, and then at some point, the teenager, you know, Japanese teenagers started getting, like dyeing their hair, coloring it like different colors and stuff. But like, so then you come back to the U.S. where 99.5% of kids your age have not had that exposure. And they're sort of all in tune with the culture of the cadence of growing up. <clears throat> well, uh, like I had soccer and stuff in Japan, but it was in Japan. Like we had one US TV channel and that was it. And then we had like a Japanese channel that played like really cool cartoons. And like as a kid, you would watch that. But your prism into 
the rest of the world is like, I remember I became a fan of General Hospital because that was the only thing on when I got home from school. Like I knew about Luke and Laura and the Quartermains as a 10 or 11 year old because that was on at three o'clock in the afternoon when we got home from school. And my friends, like my best friend and I were tired of watching Star Wars because we memorized the entire thing. So, so coming back to the US, it's like, you realize it's like, oh my gosh, like people have a different focus. There's like, there's the, the competition of popularity that high school, you know, certainly in the eighties was, was there. And so you're trying to navigate these waters, but there's also kind of this stillness. Like I tell people, I started meditating when I was like 13 or 14 years old. Like I, I remember I would, cause I, I was fascinated by Japanese culture, by Buddhism and like this, like the simplicity of beauty when you kind of really come down to it. And so like, I would, I had like a little Japanese sword, like this cheap metal sword, but I would put that in front of me and like concentrate on it. And I read this book on Shambhala, this mystical kingdom. And I was like, here's how you like stop thinking. Like that's the whole thing. Don't think. And then after a few moments of like this sort of eternal silence, then a thought will pop into your head and boom, look, you had a thought. And like, I'm not sure what I'm doing because I'm 13, but all my friends are out partying and I'm trying to learn how to meditate. And so, but like, and that, it was weird because it was this weird contrast with what like was popular. And so like, I was trying to fit in, but at the same time I had this exposure and then it sort of, it just sort of blossomed. And even in my military career, like I got selected to advanced schools because I wrote poetry. Like I started writing about 10 years into my military career because I had a boss who painted, but like, that's, that's kind of the military dependent slash veteran experience is you move around, you get exposed to things that so few people get exposed to. It's not like living in Okinawa, Japan was the sandals resort in Jamaica. Like that's not like we would go out, like we would, my kids, my friends and I would go off base and you're in like, you're in Japan, like you're in Okinawa and nobody speaks English. And you're like, you just, you're seeing all this different stuff and like, we found shops that like we could play video games with. And sometimes you play with, you know, Japanese kids and you're having these bonding moments, but you don't realize the significance of what you're doing because you're, you're, you're a kid at the same time you're processing this. And this is like my experience. Um, and certainly like the, the, the Buddhism and that Eastern philosophy absolutely stayed with me, both in terms of how I developed militarily, but also how I developed kind of holistically and spiritually. Yeah. It seems as though the, spiritual aspect of of the buddhism of your experience in japan truly has stayed with you and has kind of like almost guided you um through life and correct me if i'm if i'm you know misinterpreting any any of this as i go um but it seems like it was something that really did have a profound impact on you especially since you've continued to do it you continue to teach yoga yeah. you wrote a book called whiskey and yoga and uh, and and you have carried this with you throughout life. What did you realize how big of an impact it was having when you started meditating and you started really delving into the spirituality in Japan, or was it just kind of something that was maybe passing time as you were there? Yeah. It, so it wasn't even that direct. Like, I don't think I started doing it in Japan because like Japan was Japan was like almost kind of this heaven for me because it was 
like I had my best friend there. We love the same stuff. We love comic books. We love Star Wars. They had like Japan in the 1970s and early 1980s, like their toys were incredible. Like the, the intricacy and like the stuff that you could do with these toys was just amazing. So like as kids, it was like, you have plastic figures in the US that are bulk produced here in Japan because they focus on beauty and like trying to make perfection. Like they had these little toys that were just incredible. So like, it was just this heaven. And then you go back to the US and it's like, everybody's kind of the same flavor of like, this is what I'm doing to be popular, you know, whatever the case may be. And so it's like, uh, and it's hard to, it's hard to reconcile that. And then I think at some point it just becomes, well, yeah, this is who I am. Like, okay, but how do I do this? And for me, it wasn't like, there was this, there was something, I don't know what it was, but there was a something that I couldn't fully articulate as a teenager. I just knew it was, it was my version of teen angst. It was, I want to be like everybody else, but I know I am not. Like, I know there's this thing that like makes me look at Frankenstein and I like fall in love with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Tarzan. Like I was enamored kind of with Tarzan as a kid and the Edgar Rice Burroughs books. And, and then it just kind of like continues to blossom. But like, I don't like, it really didn't even come into, it really didn't come into focus for me probably for the last four or five years. And that's, and it's because it was, <clears throat> In some cases, it was trying to do bigger versions of the same thing, thinking that bigger was going to like turn the tide, like relationships and stuff. Um, and then it was, you know, and, and certainly we haven't even talked about, it, but growing up Judeo in a Judeo Christian philosophy and then having that mix, honestly, in a lot of ways, the military helped me kind of bring that together because. We like I, I went to a year school, an advanced degree school, where um, we studied like the theory of warfare. And there's the theory of like there's a theory, there's sort of a, a Western theory of war, which is Clausewitz, this Prussian commander who fought Napoleon, and then there's an Eastern theory of war, which is Sun Tzu, the Art of War, which was written you know, about 2,500 years ago. But like they're both coming to the same place, the same conclusions. It's just one does it very artfully, and one does it very pragmatically, and you see that like play out in, you know, people think, well, I can't be a Christian and believe in Buddhism. Well, why not? Because they're all part of the same reality you live in. Like you just have to understand how they interrelate to one another. And that was like the big kind of, even with the law of attraction, really, that was kind of the big revelation was there's this blending of philosophies and you have to realize that the blend is like the oneness of being kind of thing. I'm not too familiar with Buddhism in terms of, um, the writings. So what is it that is so similar? So, because that's an interesting comment. I, I you know, I, I would imagine people who, similar to what you said, um, are dogmatically, uh, uh, entrenched in the Judeo-Christian, um, religions. I would imagine most of them, like you said, don't believe you can have Buddhism and, and Judeo-Christian religion kind of like sure. match up. I mean, what, what is it about the two of them that does? Well, I think what you have to realize is when we look at, <clears throat> like if you follow the traditional Christian story, God creates the universe in seven days and then Adam and Eve and this kind of flow. And, and so you get to like the old Testament is this angry rhetoric 
And there's some poetry in there. Like there's, you know, some stories about David and the Psalm. Like, I don't know if, I think the Psalms are there. I don't know if they're in the New Testament or not, but like there's, there's stuff in there, but it's an angry God. And basically his message to the Jewish people is I'm the only person you can follow. Like I'm the only God. So nobody else. And then there's this weird transition where the New Testament starts and Jesus is born and it's foretold and all this stuff. And then he comes out and says, well, I'm the son of God. And so the Jewish people are like, okay, for generations, we've been said there's only one God, no one else. And now this person comes out and says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm his son. So what are you going to do? And, and so it's this clash. And then there's his temptations, his miracles, and crucifixion, resurrection. And in the West, we view this as all, like we view it like it's not it's not for sure that Jesus is going to and be resurrected in a way. Like, it's like, it's, oh my gosh, this horrible drama is playing out. But if God is this perfect being in creation, then, and created everything, then God's responsible for hell. So there's, there's, there's gotta be a connection and heaven and hell. That's just kind of a oneness. It's yin and yang, just in a different language. And when you kind of get to that place and you realize, okay, the, the message is really like you have to, that's how much you have to believe is to get to the point, realize that there's like this universal oneness and it's not this game about God. I hope at the end of time that, you know, God and Jesus get 51% of the vote and the devil only gets 49% of the vote. And so that like, it's better in heaven than it is in hell. Like, this doesn't make sense. So I, I think that like the, the universal oneness, you just have to sort of apply that philosophy to the Judeo-Christian landscape and you come to a much different place. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting perspective. And I would imagine that that's pretty consistent with a lot of what people think. What would you say, how do you think spirituality and just your thoughtfulness along the lines of spirituality and yoga, how do you think that helped you be successful or did it help you be successful as a Marine? I think it helped a little bit. I think like I was, it was weird because the Marine Corps is all I knew, but I hated being in the Marine Corps. Like, and so even though like, and my first few years were amazing because like I was in, you're doing training. So you're doing a lot of live firing stuff. You're dropping out of helicopters. You're getting exposed to tanks. Like, I mean, you're, you're doing insane stuff. And then you go into the operating force. And for me, like I joined a unit that was just one month into a six month preparation to go be on the Pacific ocean for six months is kind of like a neighborhood watch for the world. And so again, insane amounts of training. I'm in artillery. So we're blowing up stuff like all the time. I'm like dropping out of, you know, hell holes and helicopters, like at night, like on a rope. And like, you're doing all this insanely cool stuff. And then you go on a ship and you're on a ship for like six months and you hit Hawaii, you hit Singapore, you're seeing different cultures, but you're also seeing like, what it's like to be in the ocean. And like, you're not like, you're not in the Navy. So you're not steering the ship or worrying about keeping the ship up. Like, so you're on like, you know, there's only so many classes you can do to talk about artillery. And when you're like stuck together 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's three weeks between like Hawaii and Singapore, it was just like, okay, well, here we are, let's play cards. And so, <laughs> but then you also like, like you see sunrises and you see sunsets and you're like, this ocean is huge. Like this thing is mammoth. 
And it just goes on. And then you go, instead of going to Australia, because that was like the dream, we all want to go to Australia. It's like, no, you're actually going to go do real world stuff and you're going to go to Somalia and you're going to start, like you're going to land, like one of our first amphibious landings since like Korea in the 1950s, you're going to land on what is what we were told was like an opposing landing, like a beach. And so like the detail was, we heard there were going to be a thousand armed Somalis at the beach. Well, the weird thing was, like you, so you get like super serious and there's like, okay, what's going to do You come up with a plan. You're in on the plan. Even like as a young officer, I'm involved in the plan for the team that I have responsibility for. And then like, it's the day that you like, you're getting ready to launch. And so like it's, or it's the day before really, because we get the final stuff, thousand armed Somalis. You can't shoot at someone unless they point a weapon at you. That was our rules of engagement. And so like we had a company of Marines, about 150 Marines that were going to come ashore on amphibious tractors in the water, we had another 150 that were going to come ashore on rubber boats. And then we had like another 150 or so that were going to come ashore with helicopters. And so that was the plan to start Operation Restore Hope in the early 90s. And so, but artillery, because it's big guns and that's like somewhere stuck in the ship that you got to get it out, takes like four days or so to get ashore. So they say, okay, well, Lieutenant Richards, you're going to be a platoon commander and a rifle guy. So you're going to take charge of these 17 Marines. You're going to go set up a roadblock outside. So you're doing all this stuff. Like, so this, like, so Somalia was this amazing adventure. And, and then it's like, this is awesome. And then you get back from Somalia and all the money goes somewhere else. Cause other units are doing stuff and you're like, Hey, now it's, this is what marine life really kind of is. It's a lot of doing stuff, cleaning stuff, you know, occasionally doing training. And then it just becomes monotonous. But what, what isn't monotonous is the pain of moving every two or three years. And I finally got to a point in my career where I'm like, I'm doing this to myself. Like the Marine Corps isn't saying you have to stay in. And so like, why am I going to do this? If I hate the fact that like, I can't just be in one place and see what that side of life is like, why can't I just stay somewhere for like 10 years? Like what a concept. So I got out and, and then like, as it did, that kind of reignited the writing bug. And, you know, I got, I got into like a week after I got out of it, like a week later, I'm like, I'm doing yoga. And then a year later, I'm an instructor. And I'm like, okay, this is part of my life. So there's, so the, the one thing that stood out to me that you talked a lot about in that story is the monotony and yeah. the practice and just the day to day, the same thing over and over. And I understand the importance of it, especially in the Marines, because you want to be drilled to the point where those actions are habits, but that that parallels to a lot of the other things that you started to do, because that parallels a lot with yoga, I would imagine, with the monotony, the day-to-day, the practice is the important part, the doing over and over so that it becomes routine. And the same thing with writing, I would imagine, the fact that you have to, it's monotonous to get up, to write, to continue to put words on paper over and over and over again. Yeah. So it's, I'm curious to know, I mean, you say it was part of the thing you didn't like about the Marines, but then you kind of choose this, this other path that, that mimics the same monotony well, yeah, in a different way. Yeah. Well, part of it's because like, that's how I'd sort of trained my mind. Right. I mean, that's, that's what I was doing. And I was, like until I sort of realized, okay, I don't have to like follow my dad's footsteps. I don't have to do 31 years. I can like do something else. And that was like, oh my gosh, well, what does that look like? But it starts with 
like sort of recognizing where you are and yeah, like, and I think that was the, the big piece for me. And you mentioned earlier, you know, when you, like you have chapters that you've written, but like the book isn't there. Like you have to learn how to write and that like, it's, it's not just putting stuff on paper. It's like, okay, how do I stop editing myself between what my pen is one, like what my pen like is ready to do and what, what my hesitation is or how, like, you know, a lot of times, and, and that was a big, the other thing, Ryan Rhodes, I started writing, especially over the course of the pandemic by hand in a journal. And you want to talk about like blowing your mind. That is such a different experience than typing on a Mac because like, you're not deleting stuff that doesn't sound right. You're like, why did I write that? Mm, I have to reconcile that now because that just came out of me. Um, so it was, and I think like I, I, I kept chipping away at it. Three horror stories, 300 pages, nothing. Whiskey and yoga, 200 autobiography, you know, autobiographical pages, nothing. 147 or whatever pages at whiskey and yoga turned out. Okay. Got it. Boom. First book number one bestseller because I thought that meant something to get that out of the way for whatever reason. And then I was like, okay, now I can learn how to write. And, and one of the books that I recommend to anyone is Natalie Goldberg's writing down the bones, because like one of the first things she says is grab a pen and paper, grab a timer, time yourself and don't let the pen come off the page. Just write don't edit yourself. Don't worry about margins. Don't worry about spelling. Don't worry about like how big you write. Just write until the timer stops. And like the first time I did it, I remember the first sentence was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. This doesn't make sense. Timer goes off four pages later. I'm like, holy smokes. That's amazing. Like I just wrote for like how long, and this is what came out of me. And I was like, and it's kind of this yoga moment. I was fully present doing it because I wasn't distancing myself between what I want to say and what I'm saying. Yeah. So I read your book, Whiskey and Yoga, and I loved it. And it's, it's, it's interesting, actually, to hear your perspective going back on it. And, you know, one of the things you wrote in there is success is nothing more than the little habits done repeatedly until the desired outcome is achieved. When you write something like that, and there's a lot, there's a ton of these like profound little nuggets in this book. I mean, what do you mean by that? I think I have an idea, but what little habits need to be done repeatedly to be successful? Well, yeah, it's, uh, well, it, it, details matter. You talked about the Marine Corps and the monotony and the repetition, but like, that's the whole point is like the details matter. And the more sort of you get detailed in a way, the military kind of teaches you presence too. And that's why like you hear people talk about combat as being so intense, because guess what? You're not thinking about anything else you are fully engaged in that moment. And that's why people kind of get addicted to that space. I think when it comes down to like, for me, like the writing part is it's like, there's, there's something to it and you have to like, you know, I, I never thought that I would kind of take the path that I've taken with my writing, but I realized that's the point. Like I wrote a self-help book first because the number one thing that a book does is it helps the person writing it. And so for me, what that meant for details and habits was getting up consistent time. I would get up at four o'clock in the morning, but I take a cold shower for like 30 seconds, like better than coffee, wake up. I would meditate for like 15 minutes, like get my head straight. This is like, just kind of be in bliss and be present. It's 4.30, I go downstairs, I grab coffee. Uh, I take one cup of coffee into there. Like I sit down, I have like, I may take like a few minutes to like, check Gmail or whatever, 
And then like, there's a trigger in my head and it's time to write. And so that was how I wrote Whiskey and Yoga. And then with The Lighthouse Keeper, it was, well, this is a different kind of book because it's a fiction book, even though it's meant to help people. And my understanding of the story is different. So my relationship to how I write becomes different. And so then I developed different habits to write Whiskey and Yoga or to write The Lighthouse Keeper because like I wanted to be writing at a different time of day than four o'clock in the morning. I wanted to be writing when like I would be thinking about, you know, for me, like with so much time, like not so much time, but with six months in the ocean with the Marines, like you, you, you understand the fascination that people have being on the ocean. It's, it's amazing. Like it's this, you, you cannot appreciate how insignificant like we are on the planet kind of until you see this mass of blue water all around you. And it's so beautiful. And so like, I wanted to write when I would think about that. And so sometimes that was after dinner because that was like this more reflective mood for me to write the keeper. So, you know, and, and details like the, the way the Marine Corps is so good about that, I'll, I'll tell a quick story if you allow me, but it, yeah. I remember listening to a Marine, he was Lieutenant General at the time, but in, in Vietnam, I think he was a captain and he was on a small hill with his company of Marines, like hundred Marines, 150 Marines. And they were isolated from everybody else. They were like under siege for, I think, 90 days. And so he would talk about every day he meet his Marine shape, even when they didn't have water, like, cause it was July in Vietnam, not cold. Um, and so they would shave every day, every day they had a flagpole and they would run up a flag, you know, the American flag. And every day they did it, the North Vietnamese would shell them with mortars. And so, but like detail matters and you learn it's like every little thing like has to count. So you kind of start to train yourself that way. Writing is the same thing and habit building is the same thing. It's like, okay, let's create habits that I'm fully engaged in because I know they're going to help me accomplish what I want to accomplish. And so that comes down to how detailed do I get? How focused do I get to make this happen? That's a, that's a great story. And I'm trying to think about the way I want to phrase this next question. But the interesting thing about that story too is the habits that they performed one of them raising the american flag um i want to unpack this in a couple different ways raising the american flag there's two different things behind this it's one it it also defines your purpose right because the brand was it the marines that were doing this did you say Okay. So the Marines that were raising the flag on a daily basis, they understood that by putting the flag up, they were, they were following the direction and following the mission of the country and serving the country. And it was that defined purpose that reminded them every single day that they were there for a reason and they were fighting for a cause. So I think that's a great habit to remind yourself of a purpose. But not only that, by performing that habit, by performing raising the flag, yep. it brought the reaction from the adversary to attack, and they nonetheless performed it anyway. What do you think about aligning purpose, even if it's going to bring um, fire? Yeah, I would. I would amend it a little bit because, and this isn't like it's not when you're in a situation like that. The reason that this captain was having his Marines raise the American flag wasn't like as like it was kind of a playful 
screw you to the North Vietnamese, but more it was a rallying cry for the 150 Marines that he had on this hill because he couldn't be around them all the time. But he's like, you know what? This is going to be a bad situation. So we can either make it as miserable as possible or we're going to do something to like excite ourselves every day because we don't know when the siege is going to be broken. And so it was like, raise the flag. And people are like, yes, because you know, like everybody next to you has your back. And so it's more about like this, it's more about the camaraderie than it is about the political mission or the, you know, and it, I mean, ultimately every military action is a political action because conflict is an extension of, of you know, diplomacy. Um, but, but really like it's, it's more about, <clears throat> there's a healthy respect. Like they got shelled every day, but the North Vietnamese are like, okay, you're going to do this every day. And we're still like, in the, and I mean, the North Vietnamese were doing other stuff too. They were sneaking up on the hill, like at night, like getting within yards of people, like trying to get inside where the Marines were. But it's, it's more about like, it's not about the country that sent you there. It's about the 150 lives that you are, that depending on one another to get through this, that like really is the rallying cry of why those things are done. And it does, yeah. I think that does speak to purpose for sure, Ryan, for, you know, absolutely. No. So, you know, the, the one thing you talked about there too is collaboration and being a part of a group and a part of like a greater, you know, a brotherhood or a family. Um, seeing is how you did move around a lot. I know you said you had like a best friend in Japan. Yep. I mean, what what's your value in terms of the importance of collaboration when you're trying to be successful? Yeah, well, I think it's ultimately, it's huge, right? Because you understand, you start to understand like who can, where like you're not good at stuff. Like I have great, I think so, uh, concept ideas for my covers. Like I know what I want for my covers, like whiskey and yoga, it's a really cool cover. I like that. The Lighthouse Keeper, like we came up with like five or six designs, but that one was the one that popped. I'm like, yes, that's it. But I'm good at the concepts. I can't take the time to put that together. Like I can't make that happen. And so it's like, I need someone. I know like I've already kind of, I went out to, I think 99designs is the website where you can go and just like almost say, I, this is what I need. And then like a bunch of different artists will give you demos. You're like, oh, I like that one. Let's do that. Um, so you need to understand like what your strengths are. For me, ultimately, the most important thing to me is the story that I'm working on, like that is it. I don't want to worry about like, and even now, like I've been talking to an agent for over a year in my third book. I haven't talked to her like in probably like seven months because I was like, I don't I gotta figure out what this story is first. But you realize like there are people absolutely who can help you. And the more authentically you come to them with what it is you need, the more clear you are, you know, the more clear you can articulate that, the better value you're gonna get because it's like, oh, I can't really do that, but you should talk to this person. And so that collaboration is absolutely essential. I mean, I think certainly if you want to learn the business of publishing a book, for example, and you want to go, okay, I'm going to go find a printer and I'm going to go find a distributor and I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to do the work, the SKUs to get it on Amazon and all that good stuff. Great. For me, like I want to be a writer. Like I want to focus on like, what is the story that I'm going to write? And people are like, I don't care what you're doing. You have to read this. This is insane. And I can't wait to like see what he comes up with next. That's like that. Like, so it's, so that's the work. Like, okay, how do you do that? And I've like, I'm, I'm looking at like, I have eight journals that are next to me, probably 500 or 600 pages of stuff I've handwritten over the course of the pandemic, trying to figure out what this next book is. And then I started kind of come into it over the last week or so. I'm like, okay, 
because that, that was a lot, like a year <laughs> trying to like, figure something out is a lot, but now I'm kind of getting there. So yeah, it's, but it's like, you just gotta like, I mean, collaboration is huge. Like even this is collaboration. The fact that you reached out to me, I'm so grateful, so honored because it's like, wow, it's like whatever authenticity, you know, that I put like where you found me, that's what sparked to bring us together. Now we've had this meaningful discussion that I'm already super grateful for. And you've asked these intriguing and thoughtful questions. It's like, that's like, I'm getting your message out. You're getting my message out. That like That's super. That's huge. Yeah. One of the things that um, I, I, so I'm always a big advocate of um, the importance of the, not the balance. Um, oh, what's the right word, but having your physical and your mental health align and, and be balanced between the two of them. I think if one is lacking, you're going to be in trouble uh, for your overall wellness. And you write in your um, you write in your book, and I say that because I think that physical health is really important. You can't just say like, oh, I'm going to be successful in my career. I'm going to disregard my physical health. I'm not going to work out. I'm not going to get good sleep. I'm not going to eat right. So uh, to underscore the importance of physical health, I think it's interesting. One of the things you wrote in the, in the book, Whiskey and Yoga, you wrote, the equation of badassery is simple, discomfort plus duration. And I thought that was such a cool phrase when thinking about physical health. And I know that you wrote that about being in the Marines and the training for the Marines. Um, but talk about that and talk about just health in general and wellness and how important it is to your overall success as a human. Yeah, no, it's, and it's time to write because, uh, I run, I've been running Spartan races for the last few years. You see the hat and, um, in 2018, I did my first trifecta. So if you're not familiar with Spartan races, they're obstacle courses, very much like what we did in the Marine Corps. And they have a 5K, a 10K, and then a half marathon. And then they have a, um, like over a marathon, like a 50K, um, which is super intense. So I That's did my crazy. first trifecta, which is the 5, 10, and the half marathon in 2018. The half marathon was the last race. I had training was poor, like poor for it. I ran, I think it's obviously it was like 13 miles. I ran seven total or seven, like at the most in training for it. So I didn't even get to distance, get there. Like by mile 10, I'm completely gassed. Like my trainer has already finished the race. Like I, you know, I cross like the last part is you're going through these, you know, cold icy moats basically that are muddy. And then like you get to the finish line and I remember I was so kind of defeated and I was like, oh, and then I kind of looked at Ryan. I'm like, I think I'm done. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. And then a week later, like we're working out. I'm like, Ryan, so that 50K ultra, let's do that this year. Like, and so he's like, okay. And so people are like, wait, were you just saying you hated the half marathon and now you're going to train for something that's 11 months away. That's twice as hard. And I'm like, yeah, I've never done that. So, and, but, you know, honestly that weighed on me, like, I, cause I, like, I got 10 people to do this 50 K and like, I'm the oldest person. And so that's, there's psychology there. And then it's like, I don't ugh, like, I hate running. I got hyper, like we're training. We ran like 22 miles. I think was the longest we ran in training for it. And, and then we get to the race and it's November of 2019 I just come out of a relationship, like a four-year relationship that ended like heroically, but ended 2019, 
November, right before Thanksgiving, it's raining. The court, it's about 37 degrees. I think we started, it was like 45, but it's raining. You run the court, you run the first course and it's the first loop is 16 miles. And so like, I, I'm a big guy at the time. I probably weighed 200, but I think I'm down 195 now, but I require a lot of calories. Didn't have enough calories on the first half. And so like, we're getting into the halfway point and I am again, just like, Oh, I'm so angry because I'm hungry. I'm like, how am I going to do this again? Like no effing way. We get in there. Like I am just like this, like thing. And my buddy's like, Hey man, I'm going to go change shoes. Calm down. <laughs> I'm like, and then I had some soup and it's like one of those Snickers commercials where I'm like, Oh, I can do this. All right. We're good. And so like what I realized, like over the, so we finished the race and it was like, I mean, it was just horrendous because like it was muddier the second time around. We were colder. Like my trainer was shivering. Like he's like, cause he's all he had was a t-shirt and it's 37 degrees out. And so you just get to this place where like you, you kind of punish yourself to see what you can take. And then you're like, Oh, I came out of that pretty good. Like, all right. Like I'm, it wasn't as bad as I thought, even though at the time it was terrible. And then you're like, all right, well, I, I'm that strong. So what I can I do now? And like, and for writing, that's kind of what this book has been. This book has been my 50 K race to be like, okay. Cause all this kind of crazy stuff happened. Like I went to a mastermind last year with Jack Canfield right before, right when things started shutting down. And one of his comments to me was like, you've got a year. I was like, what does that mean? Like what? And so like that was looped around in my head. All this other stuff started happening. This book like started pouring out of me. And then like the pandemic, the election, all this stuff, we were like, whoa. And then like, I just, I could, the, the year mark came and went without any fanfare or something, but I was like, there's this relief because like I got to this place where I guess I didn't know that I was going to get, and now I have a better sense of what the book is. So, um, so it was the same kind of thing, but that's, that's that whole idea that like, how well, how long are you willing to make yourself uncomfortable and how uncomfortable are you willing to get for how long? And like, when you do those things, you're like, oh, that was really hard. But when you've done it, you're like, okay, that's a formula. Like I can push myself. And yeah, sometimes it's hard and the gradient can be hard. It looks uphill, but if you don't always look ahead and just kind of look back and how far you've come, you're like, okay, I don't have to look ahead to keep going. Like I, I know I can just power through this. Yeah. That 50K was a, it was a Spartan race. It was, it was. So there was obstacles the whole way too. It wasn't like you were just running a 50K. 70, 70, well, 75 obstacles, yeah. So you do like the, the circuit twice. Yeah. How long did it take you? Uh, a grand total of, I think, almost 11 hours. I think it was 10 hours. Oh my God. Yeah, well, just because like they had to, and they shut like the, towards the end because it was part of the course was like downhill. I mean, it was like a, it was like a, almost like a hundred yards downhill, maybe even longer than that. But like after the first hundred or so runners, like there was no grass to hold on to. And so like people, like I slid into a tree, like I, I slammed my shoulder into a tree, like, and they had to shut part of the course down because at night it was dark. Like they didn't expect that it would be dark by the time we finished. And then there were parts of the course that were too muddy. And so like, cause it, like, like after that, a friend of mine was like, well, let's do one in 2020. And I was like, I don't think I want to, because like, it, it, it can't be as bad as what we just did. Like that's, and that was it for me, like cold, miserable coming out of a relationship. So emotional stuff to deal with and a distance I've never gone before. 
and and then you do it and you're like okay I come out like did I you know was I top you know did I pedal or podium did I make it to a gold medal no I finished like that's all I wanted to do I did it so you just got to put that stuff in perspective I think yeah well and kudos to you for finishing it you know that, that, that that's, that's a big accomplishment <laughs> it was it was it was good it was good I know and it's funny because we started out last year like gangbusters we had like we're going to do 25 races and then culminating in greece they have a trifecta those three same races over three days in sparta like who doesn't want to do that and so like i had a couple friends are going to do that we did five races by march 7th last year and then everything shut down like greece is supposed to happen this year supposedly but um yeah it's it's a good it's a good like i was telling my trainer the other day because i haven't been as active as like they're still doing races now and i said like for, I am learning to push myself, but this year, like I really want to push myself as a writer. And that's, that's what I've been doing. That's kind of like the punishment I've put myself through over the course of the last 12 months. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have been successful at just about everything you've tried. What's something you've failed at? Oh man. Oh, like I, well, I think, I mean, it's all, it all, it's all relative of what you look at, but I think I, I look at the three books that I tried to write, like they were cool stories. Like there were some, it was just, you know, especially like with like how sort of elegant horror has become these days. Like when I grew up horror wise, it was Freddie, Jason, you know, Michael Myers, which the first couple movies were cool. And then it got, okay, let's just turn these out for a couple of years but like now, horror, if you've seen like the movie, The Witch, it's like so elegant. It's like, it's terrifying. It makes you feel like you're seeing something you should be watching. It's like so, so good and it's engrossing. And like, I felt like I had that horror thing kind of in me and, but it wouldn't, it, it, like hundred pages. And I always, it, like, I've heard people say, oh, I outlined, I, out, I outlined how I wanted to do. And I did that for whiskey and yoga because it was self-help and I wanted to be very methodical about it, but I didn't do it for the lighthouse keeper. I had this sense of how the book was going to play out. I think maybe I'd written something like just like this sort of rough sketch, you know, of what the book was going to be and like kind of how it was going to flow, but I didn't outline, I didn't get really specific. I would just like start writing and see where the story took me. I had, I edited it and the editor came back and was like, this is why the story doesn't work. And so I had to do a major rewrite, but it made the story so much better. I'm like, okay. But like, that's just part of the process. You have to learn to like trust that things are going to work out. And I think that was like, I mean, that's the big writing catch for me is you, you almost have to write, like you almost have to write for the sake of writing. It sounds ridiculous, but you almost have to like, until you can really trust that the pen is going to say what you want it to say. Like that's kind of the, the simplest way. Like it's, it's, again, it's the Eastern philosophy. You and the pen are one. And until you get, until you get to that place where you're not conscious of the pen's words, sort of like what's coming out of you, like that's what every writer dreams about. Cause then it's like, you know, every great character is still a part of the writer who created them. Like Darth Vader is George Lucas in some way, shape or form. Luke Skywalker, same thing. Tony Stark, you know, take Captain America, Superman, like there's all this connection and it's just like, how do you find, like, what do you find in you or like as me, what do I find in me that is this uniquely David Richards take on something that may be familiar, but is like, 
earth shatteringly and, and gripping. And so that's like, that's, that's Nirvana for a writer. One of the things that it sounds like you have mastered is the art of the rewrite and the pivot. Um, how do you make that determination when it's time to pivot or to start a rewrite? And how has that truly helped you kind of be successful? Yeah, well, I think it was even the process, like for Whiskey and Yoga, and I, like, I didn't have a great editing experience. Like they, I sent them the book, the editor had for 90 days. I got two proofs back and I was so excited because I thought like, like I didn't, I wasn't a great self-editor. I thought they would cover everything. This is like 10 days before it launched. I gave a copy to my mom to read and she read it like in a weekend, but she's like, there's three misspellings in a fragment sentence. I was like, what? Whoa, wait a minute. And so, so I went back, like I corrected them. I sent them back and the, you know, what got released was fine, but it was like, that wasn't cool. Like I would have expected more from the editor. So then I, I worked, I started working, I actually, I hired a company. I started working with this company that sort of connects you to author services, like people who do book design, people who do layouts, people who do editing, people who do like public speak kind of stuff. So it was like this audience that opened up. And so I found an editor. And so I sent him the lighthouse keeper and he came, like we met, I remember we met July 4th. I think it was, I want to say it was 2019, but I, that seems too quick. I don't know. But um, it was July 4th. I know that. And he's like, this is why the story doesn't work. And it was my first real editorial kind of gut check. Cause my initial reaction was like, how dare you? And then I was like, okay, put ego aside. Let's, let's step back from, let's step back from like your thoughts and your feelings on this and be aware. And yeah, he's right. That's why the story doesn't work because like, if, if I go back to star Wars, it was like Luke training with Yoda and Yoda never relieves Luke alone kind of thing. And so like I walked away with a 30 or 45 minute conversation. I walked away from it. I was like, okay. And I had suggested some stuff on the call that like sprang from me. And I'm like, okay, that's what I need to do. And so I did, I like went back in and right up until like the character, the main protagonist is Sam, right. Until it gets to the lighthouse, you know, it's pretty much the same. And then I had to make a shift because of his relationship to, to make the story more compelling. And I did. And so I had to rewrite like hundred pages, but you realize one it gives you like a chance to maybe tweak some things that you like along the way. You're like, ah, I, I'd write this. Like, I think there's at least one section where I'm like, I'm going to rewrite this. And I, I had some inspiration or like to make it really, to make it better. And I felt like, okay, I did that. And then the, other, the rest of it is okay. Let me make sure that I have, I've changed characters, which I did. That I've completely changed them, that there's no gaps where, Oh, that's not what he is anymore. Um, and, and so then it's just checking the integrity of the story. I'm like, okay, the integrity is there. It's, it's good. And so you realize like, that's the value. And so like, I'll probably go back to the editor for my next book because I had such a great experience. And like, even, even though it's been, you know, two or three years since we've spoken, at least he has a sense having read my book, like he'll, he'll be able to go back to it and say, okay, yeah, this is how like, and so he'll like, he'll understand how I've grown as a writer. I think is what my sense is. Yeah. It, it sounds like, humility was a good was a good aspect in yeah. your in opening yourself up or leaving yourself open to the necessity of change into the necessity of a rewrite or a pivot in your mindset 
Has that served you in other areas of your life too? Humility? Yeah, well, I, well, I think, oh, for sure. I think, I think, I mean, certainly I've, you know, I've come to realize that I was the problem in most of my, you know, intimate relationships, my romantic relationships. It's like, wow, it didn't take long, but finally got there. Yay. Um, but I also think it's, you know, it's back to the pivot piece and like you, like I, I haven't blogged anything for almost two months. And my last thing was called creating global, a global consciousness. Cause it was just like this inspirational thing. And I've started probably like 30 or 35, I've written about 35 pages of stuff and deleted all, but I think five, like there's five or three pages here I'm looking at, but it was just like, I would start with a good idea and then I would get to a point where I'm like, Nope. Mm. And I know enough about myself to know that when that happens, even even as good as the initial feeling or sentiment might have been, that it's not fully developed yet. Because if it was fully developed, I would finish the blog. Like I would just I would be so enthralled, and I'm not there yet. So in some sense, the editing process and like the humility of being like, okay, he's calling out what you couldn't see about yourself the way you wrote this, and that's that's a much of a reflection on me as a storyteller as it is on like me as a human in a lot of ways. Like, okay, I didn't see like how to make the story more compelling. And now I do. And so like, I, I think the, the humility piece is just, you know, you kind of have to divorce yourself from ego and, and have a beginner's mind. And that's again, a very yogic approach to, to living. And so like, I've, I've learned enough about my writing process over the course of the past year, certainly to know when something's worth pursuing and when it's time to let it sit because the idea isn't fully baked out yet. I like that. I like that. Um, it's interesting because I, I started writing um, some blogs recently as well. And I found it, I, I've, I've experienced the same feeling I think you're talking about. And it's, so my wife is an amazing editor and she's, she, one of her talents is just, is putting words on paper and, and understanding the human language. And I would write a blog post and I would print it out and I would hand it to her. And I always kind of just cringed and I was like, uh oh. Here we go. And it was something I was so proud of, you know, and she'd read it and she'd be like, I see where you're going, but this is not well thought out in terms of the way you structured it or, or, you know, and, and she'd yeah. be like, I can't even edit this because it's not the, I see, I like your idea, but I don't like your execution of it. And she'd give it back to me and I'd rewrite it and I'd come back and she's like, oh, okay, now we're on target. And she, yeah, you know, yeah. makes some edits and give it back. And it was always like, I was always so proud that first draft, you know, and I'd give it to her. I'd be like, well, here's a masterpiece. The, the, you know, I'm sure the New Yorker is going to pick this one up. Right. And, and then, you know, she hands it back to you and she's like, I, I don't think this is worth even, you know, editing. And I was like, oh, no. But through that process, I was able to make amazing strides in my writing. Yeah. And I was able to put out a product that was significantly better than the first draft. And it was eye-opening to me who is someone who tends to rush into things without kind of uh, maybe necessarily thinking about the quality, just so happy that I had it finished. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about that, especially as a writer, uh, because it was such a, a kind of a profound realization recently in my life. Well, I think, and Ryan, it's funny because I was on a podcast a couple weeks back and one of the, it was, it was hosted by two people. And one of the guys said, you know, I, I don't write unless I know it's going to be perfect. And all that tells me is you're not going to write because it's, it's, 
so often very far from perfect, but you have to do it. You have to let it be what it is. And then let someone else completely, you know, disassociate everything and say, okay, I understand what you're trying to do, but this is what's going to make this better. And um, uh, so like, so it's interesting because I think it's a lot of times you have to write to become a writer. There's not like, if you think that it's going to be perfect every time, then you're never going to put pen to paper or type on a keyboard. Cause yeah. So how, how do you manage that balance in deadlines and quality? Well, I mean, I think honestly, the big thing is most deadlines you only put on yourself. Like ultimately, and I, I say that, I think, you know, I started writing um, The Lighthouse Keeper, I think in like January, maybe of 2019, knowing it wasn't going to come out until like March of 2020. So I had some, like I had some time and that was far enough. I don't even think I started agreeing to anything until I knew I had like the book done. Whiskey and Yoga is a little bit different because um, I think I started the process uh, before I had it completely finished. But, but like you just, you know, and even, even now with my writing, especially, and it's, it's worth noting for me, Whiskey and Yoga was a very practical book to write because I could go research statistics and I needed to research statistics or tidbits of information. And, and so I did that and it was very kind of methodical and I knew what I needed when I needed it and, and how to do all that. For The Lighthouse Keeper, writing something that's fiction it's a completely different thing. I spent like hours looking at lighthouses, looking at schematics of lighthouses and just taking a different approach because I needed to be in a different place. And if now I'm trying to write about what it's like to be in a lighthouse at night when there's a storm and there's ocean all around you. Like, how does that, like, how does that start to feel like to the person? How do you describe that? And so like the writing journey for those two books was very different. And, and because it was different, I learned there's different ways to approach things. There's different ways. And that's why like, I'm trying to even kind of take a different approach with my third book where it's, you're going to read it. And you're like, well, I can't tell if this is fact or fiction yet. And it's like going to be in this weird zone, but that's like, ultimately that's kind of why I was going to subtitle. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm going to say what the title is yet, but I was going to subtitle it a horror story because depending on how you look at it, like that's kind of the scariest thing is something that we feel could be, real but doesn't feel real kind of like that's to me what what's scary is so i wandered a little bit there i'm sorry what's the next you know 10 15 years look like you think you just um you think writing is going to be your full-time career um what, what kind of what are you pursuing what do you anticipate yeah you know i i i love i love the written word i mean the written word is so powerful and uh, so I definitely, I want to continue to explore that. At the same time, one of the early versions of being, when I was still calling it that, um, I read in front of a group of friends last year. Like it was, I think the end of April or something. And I'm like, hey, let's do this. And I had like a 30-year-old bottle of scotch. And it was so cool because I remember like it was dark around this guy's back porch. And uh, Venus, for whatever reason, like Venus was so bright in the night sky. I mean, it was like, it was almost like if you see those cards, like at Christmas, where it's like a diamond, like the star of Bethlehem or whatever is a diamond. That's what Venus looked like. And we're like, what is that? And my buddy had the app with like the celestial stuff. He's like, oh, that's Venus. It's like, oh, so cool. And so I read, I read this version of being, and it starts out as this conversation between two voices and one's conditional love. And just this manifest idea of conditional love and the other one's unconditional love. 
And so through the course of this conversation that you just, like I read, but it was almost like acting because some of it like it's super, super emotional. Um, and so I kind of like, I kind of want to get into acting a little bit because it was like, it was this cool thing. And one of my friends was like, you should look into acting because like what you did, because I, to I told him before and I said, okay, I'm going to read this and I'm going to get emotional, but it's okay because it's just like where the book takes me. And so like, I read, like I read certain part, like my voice started to break and like, I know like, it was almost, I started to cry and then we got through it and people were like, what just happened? Like, what was that? Like, Oh my God. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Like, I think it's, but, but certainly I say that, but it's in the guise of storytelling. Like I want to, I, like, I could almost see myself like doing readings, but like with special effects and stuff, because it would be, it would almost be like not absurd theater, but it would just be like almost magical theater, but live. And, um, and like, I mean, some of the early stuff is, is super cool to me. So yeah, have you have you put either of your books on Audible? Haven't yet. It's funny you say that because I bought the microphone uh, that I'm using to do that, and I was going to do it during the pandemic. And I think it was just because, like, when I started, being was born. Like this book idea was born coming out of that relationship in October 2019, and it was just this like mere essence of an idea. And the idea was that who we are is more important than what we do, even though there's this harmony between those two, because whatever you're doing is always constantly shaping who you are. And so like, I, I was going to do it. And I just didn't think like, I was going to let being just germinate for a while. Like I, and so I thought like, I'm doing this because I'm going to promote, I'm doing podcasts to promote the lighthouse keeper, but why not put both these on audible? And I've had some people say, Hey, your voice is good. You should do that. So I did it. And then like, I got something to do the crowdfunding campaign and I'm like, I don't think being's ready, but I'm going to do it. And so I did it. And so no, that's a, it's a long way away of saying I haven't done that, but I, I probably should put that on my to-do list. So the last two questions I usually like to ask, um, one of them might be redundant for you, but I'm going to, um, I'm going to ask that last. So, uh, first question is if you could sit down for a drink, with anybody in the world, past or present, yep. who would it be? What would you drink and why? Um, I would go with Marcus Aurelius um, and uh, probably a nice bottle of scotch because I'm sure he's never had one. Um, but I think it would just be, it's interesting because obviously he was, uh, in a lot of ways, I think he's looked at as sort of almost the definitive emperor, you know, certainly of Augustus and Julius Caesar, but Marcus Aurelius really expanded the empire and I think used military might, you know, as appropriately as possible. But he also was this super reflective and introspective man. And, and if you read meditations, it's interesting because I did, I think about a year ago, I did a podcast with this guy in Australia and it was about stoicism and how like this idea that Marcus Aurelius didn't like believe in the gods. Like he didn't like, he thought like, this is all we are. I think that's a loose, I don't have that same interpretation. Like if you listen to him in meditations, he's always talking about the gods. And, you know, so how can this man who was so supremely, you know, smart at the time, I mean, he ran the Roman empire, like he, and he did it in a way that it wasn't necessarily in jeopardy. Like, I don't know all of his career, but I don't remember there was any sort of rebellion or any sort of drama that, you know, gave us Julius Caesar and, um, and Brutus and things like that. But like, what was his view? Like, what, like, what did he like, how did he view the world and how did he view his accomplishments outside of just what he wrote? Because 
you know, I think, I think that'd be so interesting. And, and like I said, scotch, just because I cracked open, uh, I had a 42 year old bottle of scotch when whiskey and yoga went to number one on Amazon. And, uh, it was the first time I had something that old and to like the best way to describe it, it's almost like you just taste slow motion. Like you taste time and it's this weird exotic feeling because it's not like you're drinking it any differently, but you can just taste the time as it kind of washes over you. And it's so, so sublime. And I, like, I'll never forget that feeling of sort of that quintessential moment. Number one on two things. Like I just had this glass. I had like a, a dear friend of mine had got me glasses that said whiskey and yoga. And so I was having it in a glass that said whiskey and yoga. And it was just like this beautiful, like, oh, 42 years of time and just one little drip. It was super, super cool. That's a, that's a beautiful description of it. I love it. The last question I like to ask um, that may be redundant is because I feel like you in a way have written an autobiography. Um, but if you were going to write just, you know, your autobiography and you were going to title it, um, your name in a subtitle. So David Richards, what would that subtitle be? If you had to distill it into a subtitle. Storyteller. Storyteller. Yeah. Cause it's, that's, I think to me, what I've come to appreciate, like, that's what I've always wanted to do was like, what is the grand story? Like for me, one of the constants in my life as a kid, when people weren't a constant was comic books. Like I remember, I remember being at LAX on our way to Japan and waiting for like the guy who was delivering new comics to unwrap them. Cause I saw like the book that I wanted this Captain America book, like where he was fighting Nazis in World War II. And so like, so that was his mainstay. And like, and comics were always so grand, but like back then you had super friends, which were like these cardboard cutout cartoons. And like, Ugh. and then Superman came along and Christopher Reeve, and you're like, Oh, that's cool. Batman was a joke because he was like climbing up walls and dancing like in the sixties TV show. But then superhero movies started to become real. And like, even, even, I mean, the technology, like to, to see like Lord of the Rings that's been done, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, like you, you start to see that we can visualize this grand scale of storytelling. And, and we've been doing that for hundreds of years, like Tolkien wrote, you know, generations ago. And so it's like, well, how can you do that in the modern age with all that we've accomplished and still make it feel new and fresh? And I think that's like what my, my writing journey has been on, but I think that's like the beauty of, uh, I mean, where we are now, you know, it's, it's, I was just having this conversation with someone earlier in the week, like looking at superhero movies now, it's almost impossible to tell when it's the actor and a stage, like, or like in a setting, like in their woods, or it's an actor with a green screen, or it's like just a computer generated version of the actor. Like if you look at some of the, like where someone's flying, and you can see they're flying in a weird way where like, okay, that's some computer generated thing that looks exactly like Henry Cavill or Tony Stark, but it's not. And like, I can't tell the difference, which is kind of cool, but it's also like, okay, well, what's the technology going to be like in five years? Because if, if we're to the point now where we can't tell, like where there's this sort of symmetry in our storytelling from a visual perspective, what does that mean for you know, reality kind of, and it's like, that's, I think that's the next leap, you know, and you look at even some of the stuff like PlayStation has their, their VR stuff and stuff like that. If you haven't played like 
if you haven't done Iron Man on, on PlayStation 5 and VR, it's next level. Like when you are flying and then you suddenly drop out of the sky, like everything around you is virtual. And if you drop, you're like suddenly stop. You're like, whoa, oh, I, I'm just... I'm just holding these two things and I had this headset on and I felt like I just landed really hard because I let go of my repulsors too soon. So it's like, it's, and it all goes, I know I'm wandering on this, but it all goes back to, I started reading Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near, this idea that humans will at some point transcend biology. And <clears throat> yeah, and I think a lot of times we think it's going to be, well, we're going to put implants in our brains and take chips and like there's a chip, like they saw something where Elon Musk put a chip in a monkey's brain and the monkey could play Pong. Like, that's cool. But OK, what about the pineal gland? Because like the ancient Egyptians knew that the pineal gland right in the middle of our head, the third eye is something mystical. That's why the eye of Horus and the eye of Ra and all that stuff exists. And they built these pyramids that we can't completely figure out how they necessarily built them today. And they built them for a specific reason. So maybe humans transcending biology doesn't have anything to do with getting an implant. Maybe it's like the spiritual or divine awakening of consciousness. So, um, yeah, I, I'm like, I've just, I've enjoyed Ryan so much talking with you that I think I don't want it to end. So I, I appreciate it. No, no, that I've, I've enjoyed this so much. It's, it's been, it's been a great conversation and I love, I love just hearing the way your mind is working. I think, I think you have a novel sitting in there about this blending of, uh, of reality yeah. and, and the, the way you describe that. I think that's, that's a really cool concept just to think of how you might not know what's real and what's not real and not in a virtual or augmented reality, but in reality itself and yeah. what happened. Yeah. What happens if this, if this <laughs> virtual augmented reality comes, you know, to fruition and there is no understanding of what is real and what isn't real. Well, and that goes back to this idea that like we didn't invent the law of gravity. We discovered it like the law was there. And the same thing with the speed of light, like we've discovered stuff, but it's OK. Well, how much do we know? And like like I I tie into and in, I did an article recently about or a couple months back about like the relationship between yoga and quantum physics. And people are like, what? But. Yeah, absolutely. There's a relationship there. Like the quantum, like we know the quantum realm is real. Like we, we know there's a quantum level. And then I started you know, reading stuff about muons. And I'm like, what's a muon? Like I thought the quark, like the quantum thing was the lowest thing. And now there's muons and there's like, you know, benign or beautiful, like other, like I've heard other names, but it's like beautiful is at the front of it. Like, so you're like, well, if you, even just from a standpoint of 160 years ago, the Pony Express, it took 10 days to get a message from the East Coast to the West Coast of the United States. Today, I can have a real-time conversation with you from New York. I'm in North Carolina. We're seeing video, a few glitches here and there, but real-time essentially. But I can do the same thing with someone in China. And maybe there's a little bit of a lag, but now we're consuming and producing information on a rate that we've never done before. And how can, how can the fact that, you know, big data, how is that not going to affect our decision-making or, you know, if we're, if we're having computers crunch numbers that would take a normal person months to do, and they can do it in a couple seconds or a couple of days, like even a minute or two, and we get a result from that. Yeah. That's going to raise my awareness and understanding of like how life works. Like, you know, I, I work in a large IT company. Well, we've created this neural network for the earth. Like you think it's just about passing information from like, you know, you to me, but information goes and like, 
nature has a say in things too. Like we live on a living planet. I mean, that's what trees and an ocean that breathes and everything else. That's kind of what this is. And, and uh, yeah, so I think like, I, I think reality is going to get really interesting really soon because more and more people are kind of waking up to this. The fact that like, we, I mean, I remember when I first started talking about this, like it was weird that you would talk about spiritual things like in a military sense, like especially in Western culture or like, you know, it's sometimes still weird to people that like a guy teaches yoga. Well, why? Like I'm half, like my mom, like I came from an egg and a sperm. I didn't come from like 80% of an egg and 20% of a sperm or vice versa. Like it was 50, like, so like I'm, I'm half female. Like we're all half male, half female. That's just how it works. Like how you genetically appear or something else. So like, it's, it's, yeah, I think we're like in an unprecedented time. I think it's going to be really exciting. I know obviously the pandemic has been this, this weight, but at the same time, I think, you know, brighter days are ahead. I, I certainly get that sense, even though there's all these variants and stuff, but yeah, it's like, it's a beautiful time to be alive. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's cool. I was actually listening to something the other day about, um, about reality and, and it reminded me when you were talking there, cause it was like, what is reality? Reality in terms of the brain, the brain is encapsulated in your skull, right? There's no, there's no part of your brain that is exposed to the outside world. So, and the crazy part about that is that your brain is what is interpreting the data that comes from the outside world. So it has no exposure to it, but it's interpreting it and it's giving you the sensations of what you are taking in. So the idea that like, yeah, you and I are a thousand miles apart right now. And with a minimal lag and some glitches, it is as if we are in the same room together having a conversation. Well, our brain, although it can wrap its head around the idea of being in, different, in a different place, in a way, it's like we are together because oh, yeah. there's still just a fine layer of skin and bone kind of separating the brain from the outside world but it's no different to the brain, you being on a computer screen versus you being in the room itself. And that's, uh, it's kind of, it's crazy to think about how that would affect reality to say, well, what, what truly is real? I mean, maybe, maybe we are in the same room together, you know? I, I love what you said, because in a lot of ways, it's just a different eye, it's a different ear, and it's a different mouth. But like, we're still like, again, real time, like I'm looking at your eyes right now, as opposed to looking at the camera, but like, that's all real. And so, yeah, I mean, I just think it's so interesting because like, like I said, I'm a huge superhero fan. So big thing and they had an end game, which was like really, again, grand theater to like wrap 22 movies together over the course of 10 years, really unprecedented in our time, super cool. And then there's kind of the lag, like they did Spider-Man and the pandemic hit and like Black Widow got pushed. And then they came out this year with like their first TV show on Disney plus WandaVision. And it was weird because like the first couple of episodes, I was kind of like, oh crap, that's right. Like there's still this place where Endgame happened. And now there's this weird thing, which in a way, this is going to sound next level, but like Vision and Wanda are sort of like Adam and Eve in a way, because like he's this all powerful AI who doesn't know what it's like to be with someone else. She didn't even know she was a witch until like the end of the episode. I hate to ruin it for people, but like, and that whole universe still exists. And like, that story is part of our reality. Like it's, you can say, well, it's fiction. It's still part of our reality. That's a real story. Like I can go watch it right now on Netflix or on, you know, Disney plus or whatever. That's part of our reality. 
And people, people sometimes disassociate, well, it's fiction or it's this or it's that. Guess what? You're still experiencing it. So it's absolutely part of your reality. And yeah, it's, it's super cool. Like I think, I, I think, um, and hopefully my book will certainly cover on this whenever I get completely finished it with it. But um, no, I, I think we're like entering into, I think that singularity that Ray Kurzweil talks about, I think we're pretty close to it. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, David Richards, this has been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Ryan. Oh my yeah, God. where can people find you? Uh, DavidRichardsAuthor.com. So uh, you can get Whiskey and Yoga and Lighthouse Keeper there. Uh, also, other podcasts or some of my, all my blogs. Uh, David Richards Author on Instagram. And then I think David Richards A2 on Twitter. But uh, please come check me out. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to like see what comes next. So this has been super exciting. Ryan, I can't believe it's almost been two hours. Like, this is phenomenal because I feel like. It's been so engaging. Your questions have been so spot on. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Everybody, grab a bottle of scotch, open it up, and read some of this stuff. Awesome. Thanks, David.